Hey, how many of you today have a cell phone with you? Now would be a good time to make sure it's on silent or to turn it off. Uh, Do you know who invented that handy little device? I think so. How many of you have a hot water heater at home? Those of you that didn't raise your hand, are you boiling your water outside or something? (laughs) Who is responsible for that little miracle? I mean, it is a miracle. Think about it. You go to the sink, turn switch, hot water instantly. One more, and because of where we live, You might know this one. In fact, one person in the early service knew this one. Here we are sitting in this climate-controlled building that would be impossible about eight months out of the year, given the Florida heat. You drove here in a car that had all this fantastic little equipment to blow cold, freezing air out of tubes onto your face to keep your makeup from running down on your way to church. You'll go home today, you'll go to a box, a steel box with a little rubber gasket around it. You'll open it up. It's called a refrigerator. And you'll have good food and milk and everything. Who is most responsible for this blessing of cold air? Because you know what? Our life would be impossible living it the way it is today without air conditioning and refrigeration. Who gave us this miracle? No. If you paid even the tiniest amount of attention in high school or college, you will know, just the tiniest amount, you will know some of the names of our greatest inventors. People like Thomas Edison, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Marie Curie, Steve Jobs. But you hardly ever, maybe never, hear about Martin Cooper, who in 1973 came up with the idea of a mobile cell phone. By the way, he's 90 years old today and still alive and kicking and still working as a consultant with Motorola. No one's ever heard of Ida Forbes. We can't even find a picture of her. (laughs) This is her 1917 schematic of an electric hot water heater. And a little closer to home, it was Dr. John Gorey, a physician in Apalachicola, who first pondered the idea of refrigerated air. He was a physician trying to figure out how to cool his patients. And to be honest, if you lived in Apalachicola with those mutton chops on your face, you would need some air conditioning. (laughs) All the ice that he was shipping down from the Great Lakes was melting before it could get to the Apalachicola port. On and on I could go. Mary Anderson invented the windshield wiper. Peter Duran, the tin can. Tim Berners-Lee, not Al Gore, the internet. Josephine Cochran invented the dishwasher. And who knows the geniuses of antiquity who gave us concrete, compasses, wheels, and whiskey. We will never know their names. Thanks be to God for them, whoever they are and wherever they might lie. You don't have to be famous. You don't even have to be known to change the world in which you live. Here's an observation that is pretty easy to make about the world in which we live today. Everybody... He's trying to be somebody, anybody, but a nobody. Everybody is trying to be somebody, anybody, but a nobody. Climb to the top of the heap. Do something unforgettable. Launch the next best IPO in Silicon Valley. Be famous. Be a star. Get on that top ten list. Be remembered. Be recognized. Lauded and applauded. Make sure everyone sees and knows about your accomplishments, your work, 
your popularity or your whatever. Everybody is trying to be somebody, anybody, but a nobody. So today, let's talk about nobodies. Let's aspire to be nobodies. I've titled this talk, Divine Nobodies. I borrowed that title from a friend. My friend Jim Palmer wrote a book entitled Divine Nobodies back in 2006 after a brutalizing season in his own personal life. He calls it his coming out book, coming out of organized religion and looking for God in the ordinary. And I've always liked that. Look for God in the ordinary. I will amend it only to say this. Not so much should we look for God in the ordinary. God is looking for the ordinary. God is looking for the common. God is looking for the typical. God has all the stars God needs. Just look into the midnight sky. Trillions. God is looking for nobodies. There are people that He is looking for that are just living life, doing what they do. And they find themselves in this mysterious alignment, this inexplicable spirit-driven collision with the divine. And I resist saying that they are in the right place at the right time. It's not that at all. They are simply in their place. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just where they are, and God meets them there, where the remarkable happens. And after the remarkable happens, there is no need for a book tour, a website, or a press agent in the aftermath. They are content to remain unknown. And the word content is, un- is intentional. There is this strange, soul-filling satisfaction of freedom that comes from being a nobody and being unrecognized. I want to introduce you to a couple of divine nobodies today from Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 16. Uh, for a bit of context, I have been working my way through this series on the life of Jesus. I've had a Wednesday night study going on and uh, this accompanying series on Sunday mornings. And uh, I'll finish up next week as we get toward Lent and into the season of Lent. And I've just been highlighting main events in Jesus' life. And we've made it far enough into this series that we've made it to Holy Week. And man, you get to Holy Week and a, and a preacher can just kill himself preaching about Holy Week. You never run out of anything to say about Holy Week. Cleansing of the temple triumphal entry, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, the resurrection, all those things are in that one week. And for those of you that haven't been coming on Wednesday nights, first of all, shame on you, but second of all, this information. We only have 52 days of Jesus' lives in the gospel. We don't have years and years and years. We have 52 days when it's all added up together. And of those 52 days, 50% of the Gospels are spent on the last week of Jesus. So, hey, there's a lot of material there. But I've got this splinter down in my skin that has to work its way out. In the study lately, I have found these divine nobodies, these two guys that no one's ever heard of, no one's paid attention to, we don't even know their names. And they are crucial to the Holy Week events of Jesus' life. Let me introduce you to him. This is verse 7 of Luke 22. The festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, 
Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal together. And when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down at the table, and Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, for I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, Do you see the two divine nobodies in Luke's telling of the story? Peter and John, they're not nobodies. Well-known, well-named, men who will become legends, are sent to Jerusalem to make preparations for the Passover meal. This is the meal that Jews had been eating for centuries, and they continue to observe to this very day the Passover meal. Jesus would take this Passover meal and make it for the church a practice that we observe all these years later, centuries and centuries upon end. And he sends Peter and John into the city to find this place where they're going to eat this meal. Verse 10, when you get to Jerusalem, there's going to be a guy carrying a pitcher of water following. When he gets where he's going, there's going to be another guy that has an upper room already set up. Tell him I'm coming. And those are your two divine nobodies. How cryptic can you get? All right, Pete, Johnny, come here. I got a, I got a job for you. I need you to go into town over there. You know, we're going to have our big soiree tonight. And when you go into town, there's going to be a guy carrying a jar of water. A jar of water. A jar of water. What's his name? It doesn't matter what his name is. He's just a guy. He's, I got a guy. I got a guy. And he's going to be carrying a jar of water. Huh? Whatever you say, all right. All right, follow him. Go with him. He's going to go to this house. When you get to the house, there's going to be another guy. Another guy. What's his name? It doesn't matter what his name is. I got a guy. And he's going to have everything. Look, if you can't handle it, Thaddeus, Andrew, somebody around here can handle this for me. I get, I get Thomas to do it. He don't, he don't believe anything I say, but he's got, more, he's got more faith than you do at the moment. Okay, we're going, we're going, we're going. A guy with water, who are we looking for? It sounds so cryptic, doesn't it? So strange, but to them, it would not have been. Context is critical here. Men did not carry water in Jesus' day. If first century Judaism was anything at all, it was chauvinistic. There were well-defined roles when it came to work. And carrying or drawing water, I hate the phrase, was woman's work. And a man would not be caught doing that. So Jesus isn't being vague. He's not being cryptic. He's actually being specific. There was a great, not a great prayer, but it was a great prayer that the rabbis of Jesus' day prayed. I thank thee, O God, that thou hast not made me a Gentile, a dog, 
or a woman. The Gentile and the dog get better billing than the woman. You look at a mid- some Middle Eastern cultures today, you can look at some Western cultures today, and look how women are treated. Like property. No rights. No involvement in the public sphere. That is very much the culture of Jesus' day. So a guy carrying a jar of water is an anomaly. Not routine. There's not going to be a thousand guys with a water jar and they have to figure out which one it is. The only men who carried water in those days was a group called the Essenes. Now, in Jesus' day, there were four political slash religious groups and you don't separate them back then. First of all, you had the Sadducees. He's the guy at the top with the big scroll by himself there. The Sadducees, we would look at them today and say, oh man, that's the East Coast, West Coast liberal elite. They're the ruling class. They're wealthy. They're educated. They're in the know. They're kind of snobbish. They sort of run things. And then you had the Pharisees. That's the three guys in blue at the top there. The Pharisees were of the people. They were the equivalent of the Tea Party. They're conservative and a little angry. And they're Jesus' chief protagonists. They're always going back and forth. Then you come to the zealots. See that angry mob at the bottom. And that's what they were. They took anger to a whole new place. They were a loose confederation in the time of Jesus, no joke, of homegrown militia groups. And they would eventually, according to Josephus, be the main reason that the Jewish nation collapsed under the Romans because they had such a nationalistic, fiery, violent way about how to solve the country's problems. And then the fourth group, the Essenes. The the monks, the nuns, and the homeschoolers. They looked out at Jewish society and they saw... You liked that one, didn't you, the homeschoolers? They looked out at their society and they saw the corruption of the Sadducees. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The violence of the zealots. And they said this, we're out of here. Forget it. They're going to tear it all down. They're destroying everything. We're just going to check out and watch it all burn. Those were the Essenes. They were holy people. They were good people. But they were not engaged with the society around them. They withdrew. It was the Essenes who wrote and preserved what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the Essenes who taught and influenced the preaching of John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who influenced and led the way for Jesus. And it was the Essenes who gave us the practice of baptism. They would baptize themselves twice a day. They had to carry a lot of water all the time. They had these massive pools. They would get up in the morning. They would self-baptized, they would walk down a set of steps, and so as not to be able to touch anything, there would be a a, a turnaround and they would come up another set of steps, ritualistically and purely clean. They would put on their linen robes for the day, have breakfast together, and their work, literally, was to write down the Word of God and to preserve it. They would do it all day. At the end of the day, they would remove those linen robes back into the baptistry. They would go again, come out the other side, have dinner, and go to bed. What a great job. But John the Baptist takes 
the practice of Essene baptism, and he brings it to the mainstream as a symbol of renewal to God. And Jesus takes it and gives it to the church as a symbol of rebirth and resurrection of joining this community. So they are very influential, and today you can pick up the Dead Sea Scrolls, something, and here's a few pages of them here, something that was impossible to do 75 years ago because they weren't found until the 1940s. You can take the Dead Sea Scrolls and read those works and read their prayers and read their poems and you will be shocked at how much they and Jesus sound alike. They had incredible influence on Jesus. And you might ask, well, why didn't they just, why didn't Jesus just stick with them? Why didn't He just stay with them? Well, because the Essenes, for all of their holiness and all of their goodness, were a lot like some of the groups we were raised in. Our four, no more. We're the only ones going and everybody else can just go to hell just as quick as you can get there. It's like the old joke, the guy gets to heaven, Simon Peter meets him at the gates. He says, let me show you to your new home. They start walking through heaven. They get to this mansion. It's full of people partying. And the man says to Simon Peter, who's that? And he says, that's the Pentecostals. They are so happy to be here. You can't control them. They're walking on down the road. They come to another mansion. Same thing's going on. It's this massive party. And he asks Simon Peter, who are they? And he says, that's the Methodist. Can you believe it? How rowdy they are. They are so happy to make it to heaven. They come to a third one. Simon Peter looks at the guy and says, and they start tiptoeing by the door. And the guy says, who's that? He says, those are the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> now, to be fair, I used Presbyterian in the first service. Okay, so. <laughs> Jesus didn't come to retreat from the world. Jesus came to engage the world. The Essene world was too small. Jesus came not to run away from the world. He would be killed by the world. He would die for the world. He's not a retreatist. Their world is too small. He breaks free from that, but he takes so much of what they have, the good part, with him when he goes. In 1977, Father Bargell Pixner, this wonderful combination of monk and archaeologist, a divine nobody that you have never heard of, uncovered the Essene Gate in Jerusalem. The Essenes had a thriving community there. Just outside the gate, he found massive ritual baths, baptismal pools, that they would take water to and from. And not 600 feet from where this picture is taken in 1978 is the upper room where Jesus and His disciples had the Last Supper. It was all destroyed by the Romans. The men that we read about today had perished long before Luke ever put the words down to parchment. They were just told to find this unknown, unidentified holy man wearing a linen robe and a jar in his hand. Go with him. He'll lead you to another linen-clad holy man without a name, a part of a group that only we have known about for the last hundred years or so. But Jesus knew who they were. And they were ready just to do this work. They probably didn't even understand the work they were a part of. They were just living their lives, going about the routine of what it is they do, and Jesus somehow collides the holy work of God with what they are doing. Their names are lost to us. 
And in a few minutes, we'll gather around a table and take elements that Jesus blessed in that upper room, and it's only possible because of a couple nobodies that we don't even know who they are. This is not bad news when I tell you this. It is not likely that any of us in this room will be remembered for very long in history. That's okay. We want to do something that lasts, yes. We want to be a part of something that has meaning, yes. But none of us are Julius Caesar. We're not Shakespeare. We're not Joan of Arc. We're going to leave our legacy. We're going to leave our name. We're going to leave our obituary. And if we're fortunate, we'll have a few people for a few years that will think fondly of us when we cross their mind. And if we've been really exceptional and have enough grandchildren, we might be remembered for a few decades. And we will disappear into history. That is okay. Because by chance, we might get to be a part of something divine along the way. We might stumble into God's will and have a hand in doing God's work. A happenstance may put us in the bullseye of something we cannot even begin to imagine or understand. And I know I sound like the anti-motivational speaker. <laughs> I'm supposed to tell you, go for it. Make your mark on the world. You can do it. Yakety yak, 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 yada, yada, yada. And I guess I am saying those things. But find the blessed peace of doing it as you. I told you to turn that phone off. Well, you had a chance earlier in the service. I'm kidding. Live the small, humble, charitable life that you have been given to live. If you want to be somebody, you want to be somebody? Be you. Be a nobody. Because it's the nobody that has no angle left to work. The nobody hasn't the need for fame or payback or recognition. The nobody doesn't have to see his or her name up in lights. The nobody isn't chasing after the cheer of the crowd or the fickle compliments of other people. The nobody can become a historical wallflower. The nobody is liberated. The nobody is disentangled. The nobody is ready to experience whatever God brings into his or her life because the nobody has given up on their own personal agenda. The nobody is free. Free of ego. Free of striving. Free to live, free to be whatever you and God can work out together to be. I remember the first time that I played Patrick Morley's game called the Game of Tens. I did not do well. And you won't either, because you're about to get a chance. I played it again this week, and I still didn't do very well. Are you ready? Can you name the ten wealthiest people in the world? You can get a couple of them. Can you name the ten most admired people in America? Can you name the top ten corporate executives in Silicon Valley? Can you name the first ten presidents of the United States? Can you name the last ten winners of the Nobel Peace Prize? Can you name... 
the top 10 grossing actors or actresses in Hollywood? Can you name the 10 most popular musical stars in the world today? Can you name the 10 most followed people on social media? Can you name the top 10 athletes of all time? Can you name the 10 most watched shows on Netflix? Now, the answer to all that is 100 names. And if I gave you a half an hour with a pen and a piece of paper and without your phone, and I said, go, you got a half an hour. My suspicion is that most of us in this room would fail miserably. Oh, you might knock it out of the park when it came to entertainment, but you don't know anything about U.S. presidents. You might know all the rich people in the world, but you don't know nothing about musical stars. You see, we would fail. And you know why we would fail? Because for all of our obsessions with the top tens and the number ones and the big dogs, for all of our obsession with it, we don't remember who these people are. And when it gets right down to it, we really don't care. Here's a few more game of ten questions. Can you name ten people who have been your friend in your lifetime? Can you name 10 people today that you love? Can you name 10 memorable experiences in your life and those people that shared them with you? Can you name 10 people who will be at your funeral? Can you name 10 people that you just can't wait to see when you get to heaven? Now that list is a list of divine Nobodies. History will not remember them. But your life would not be what it is today without that list. And they would not be the people they are without you in their life. You want to be somebody? Be you. Be a nobody. And you'll be free to live. Truly live in this world.